Well, uh, not too long ago, I started wearing glasses. Uh, and I had to because I have what many eyeglass-wearing people do, an astigmatism, which basically means I have an imperfection in the curvature of my eyes, which results in blurred vision. Now, I can kind of correct it uh, by squinting, but that's annoying, not to mention I'm sure I look like a weirdo squinting all the time. And on top of that, sometimes just squinting isn't quite enough to clear things up, especially at night. And if it was raining at night and I was driving, things were getting pretty dicey. So rather than continuing to play the odds in those situations with my family in the car, I decided to get glasses. And when I did, one of the, uh, one of the things the optometrist explained to me was the reason why squinting was helping. So, side note, if you're squinting a lot, go get your eyes checked, you may have an astigmatism. Anyways, uh, she said the reason I was squinting and the reason it was helping me was because the image formation property <clears throat> of my optical system is more like an oval rather than a sphere. And so, squinting was squeezing my oval-shaped vision back into the correct spherical shape, allowing my vision to clear up at least while I was squinting. The glasses, though, will function to do the same thing, but in a much better way. Okay, now that's probably way more info than you need about the geometric optics of my eyes this morning, but I say all that to say this. Now with glasses, it's really nice not missing out anymore on both the little details of life all around me, but especially those things that could pose some danger to me that I was having difficulty seeing. And though it pales in comparison, the help my glasses have given me to see and process life so much better is the same sort of help we find God giving his people in today's passage. Here in Exodus 19, God is reshaping the theological optics of his people. He is correcting the way his people see him and the world around them so that as they began their journey to the promised land, encountering both the little things of everyday life, but especially those things that would pose a danger to them, they'd be equipped to correctly see and process those things and therefore to experience the blessings that come from being God's people. And the reason this matters for you today is because the difference between you seeing God correctly or not will make a big difference in your life as you experience all that God sets on the path of your life. Let me say that again. The reason this matters for you today is because the difference between seeing God correctly or not will make a big difference in your life as you experience all that God sets on the path of your life for you. So as we take a Sunday away from our summer series on the fruit of the Spirit and spend our time together here in Exodus 19 this morning, let's allow the Holy Spirit by the use of the word to check our theological vision and to make any adjustments necessary so that we, just like the Old Testament people of God, might rightly see the Lord and the world around us so that we won't miss out on the blessings that come with being his people. 
So I want to begin by getting, helping us get a better picture of where we are and what's going on here in Exodus 19. And right away, uh, there in verse 1, we have a, a timestamp that's helpful in understanding this part of the story. If you look back there, chapter 19, verse 1, it says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. And because way back then people based their seasons on the moon rather than on calendars hung on their wall, a new moon signified the beginning of a new month. So that means it's been two months since the people of Israel had left Egypt. And if you're at all familiar with the Bible, then you know the significance of Egypt. And while I won't take the time now to unpack all of that significance, I do want to emphasize just one point. And that's that the Israelites had been in Egypt for 400 years. And I want that to sink in on you because that's crucial to what we find God doing um, here for them in today's passage. 400 years is a really long time. America, as we know it, is 247 years old, so we're talking about adding 150-plus years to that, and that's how long the people of Israel would have been in Egypt. So if you think about that for a moment, you can think about all the different events that would have taken place, all the people who had come and gone, all the stories that had been accumulated, and don't forget the most important part about it, and that's the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. And while some nations might allow the coexistence between their gods and religions and the, and the gods and religious customs of their foreign subjects, that was not the case in Egypt. We also have to remember that none of the customs that we often associate with God's Old Testament people had yet to be established. There was no Passover yet. There was no Feast of Harvest, no ceremonies. It's not like the Israelites were allowed to go to their temple just as long as they kept up with their slave master's quotas. Remember, Israel didn't even have a place of worship yet. That's why Moses kept asking Pharaoh to let them leave so that they might worship the Lord. But as you're probably familiar with the story, you know that since Pharaoh was viewed by the Egyptians as a god, he felt he had the right to deny that request and to continue his harsh treatment of the Israelites. So just imagine how all of that would have influenced how you viewed God and the rest of the world around you. In fact, later in God's story in Joshua 24, we're actually told that Israel had been so influenced by the world around them that they had come to worship some of their gods. All that to say, at this point here in Exodus chapter 19, it's only been two months since they left 400 years of identity-shaping experiences behind them. Well, having established a bit of the time frame and its significance to the story, let's move on now to the geographical marker that we find there in verse 2, as that gives us another significant detail to this story. And there, not only do we learn that Israel is in the wilderness, but also that they're at, quote, the mountain, as the end of verse 2 puts it. And the way it's put there, it makes it sound like we should know what this mountain is and what the narrator is talking about. But the question is, what is it? Which mountain is he referring to? 
Well, back in chapter 3, we find Moses having his first meeting with God. And you remember what that one was like. It was the famous burning bush experience. And that took place at what chapter 3, 1 refers to as, quote, the mountain of God. And then later in that same chapter, God promises to Moses that he will bring Israel out of Egypt. And when he does, he says that, quote, they will worship me at this mountain. And so that's why the narrator, the narrator of Exodus can simply tell us that Israel encamped before the mountain. And be sure we'd know what mountain he was talking about. It's a subtle clue, a subtle hint cluing us in to the faithfulness of the Lord when it comes to the promises that he makes to his people. Well, that subtly turns to much more um, obvious things as we get into the heart of our passage and to the point of what God is doing here at this moment of transition in the lives of his people. And it's worth noting that Israel would remain here at this geographical location for the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. It's just good to know because sometimes when we're reading the Bible and we turn a page, we're not sure the uh, chronological order there, but they remain here, the people of Israel, in this geographical area for the rest of the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And I think the big reason for that is because God had the big job of reprogramming his people's identity. And the first thing God does is to give them a correct view of who he is. And that's immensely important for those whose identity would be wrapped up in being known as God's people. And it is so simply because the way you see someone affects the way you process what they do and what they say. Isn't that true? The way you see someone, it affects the way you process what they do and what they say. Remember, the people of Israel, they're coming out of 400 years of having their identity shaped by being slaves in Egypt. It wouldn't therefore be a stretch to say that while they may have viewed their God as powerful, they probably would have wondered if their God could be trusted. And I say that because while some gods of the ancient Near East were thought to be benevolent, none were thought to be predictable. Case in point was Pharaoh. With the amount of times he changed his mind during the course of the ten plagues recorded earlier for us in the book of Exodus. Not only that, but Pharaoh, along with many of these ancient Near Eastern gods, used his power to oppress and intimidate his subjects into service And what's more, the worship ceremonies of some of these gods around the people of Israel often included things like sexual activity, infant sacrifices, and the slaughter of animals. And so I think that's one of the reasons that God, here in our passage, prohibited all of that activity from having any part of this sacred encounter here on the mountain with his people. The Lord was demonstrating visibly to them just how different he was than every other God. And so contrary to every God the Israelites may have heard about, saw worshipped, or maybe even worshipped themselves there in Egypt, the Lord wanted them to know that he is wonderfully gracious. And he supported that claim there in verse 4 when he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
And that amazing act of deliverance would have been fresh in their mind's eye after years of suffering and years of crying out. God came to the rescue, and do you remember what that looked like? The visibility of that deliverance for all to see drawn out in those ten plagues God brought upon Pharaoh in Egypt. And then the amazing spectacle of seeing the Red Sea part with a pathway for Israel to escape through. And do you remember what God required of his people before he acted on their behalf? Well, Exodus chapter 3, 7 tells us, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come to deliver them. Or listen to how Deuteronomy 32 describes God's deliverance. He found them in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them in its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. So what did God require of them before he acted on their behalf? The answer is nothing. It was God who had chosen them to be his people. And so when the Lord saw them in their suffering and heard their cries, he rescued them, demonstrating that he's not only able to save, but he's willing to as well. Unlike all the other gods they've heard about and experienced, the Lord used his power to save those in need, not to exploit them. But there's more than that to his wonderful grace that he wants his people to see about him in this passage. There's also the fact that contrary to the other religions around them, Israel does not have to work their way up to God in order to meet with him. Instead, he actually comes down to them. And this mountain experience here in Exodus 19 would make that point in a visually powerful way. And I say that because God didn't pick a mountain to meet with his people just because it was there. He picked it to make a point. Because just like the ziggurats of that time, those triangular-shaped temples built to symbolize mankind's effort of reaching up to God, the mountain would mirror that geometrical shape. But unlike man's effort in building the ziggurat in an effort of trying to reach their God, the Lord's the one who built the mountain and initiated coming down to them. And so, we, and so with these visual demonstrations before them of the kind of God he is, the Lord invited the people of Israel into realizing his amazing blessings by obeying him and keeping his covenant. Listen again to verse Verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And friends, that's the way it always is with the Lord. He saves first and then calls us to obey in order that we might keep 
uh, covenant with him and enjoy his blessings. It's not the other way around. It's not obey my voice and keep my covenant and then I'll deliver you, but because I delivered you, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will experience the blessings of being my people. And so coming fresh off of his great deliverance from Egypt by this God who's unlike any other, the people of Israel respond to him with a resounding yes. Or as verse 8 records, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But before things could move forward from there, the Lord had one more component that, he, uh, that would be essential for them to see. Not only did the Lord want them to see him as wonderfully good, but he also wanted them to see him as utterly holy. Wonderfully good and utterly holy. And just like his graciousness was visibly demonstrated that day to shape their view of him, so too was his holiness. And the demonstration of this is seen in our passage today in the number of times we read about Moses and God going up and down this mountain. Did you happen to catch that as we read our passage? In verse 3, we read that Moses went up to God. And verse 14 tells us that he went back down to the people. Verse 20 tells us that Moses went up to God. Verse 25 tells us that he went back down to the people. And while Moses went up to meet with God, we're told there in verse 11 and verse 20 that the Lord came down to the top of the mountain to meet with him. The question I hope you're asking is what's the point with all of this up and down business here in Exodus 19? Well, the ascending of Moses to meet with God, paired with the descending of God to meet with him, was meant to be a visible reminder to them of the great distance that exists between the holy God above and sinful people below. And to be sure they got that point, the Lord would demonstrate his holiness to them there in a variety of ways. Just listen again to the words used here in our chapter to describe God's Holiness. There are these three phrases that we read throughout. Be ready. Take care. Don't touch. And along with those warnings, we also get these audio-visual aids. A thick cloud, thunder, and lightnings, very loud trumpet blasts, smoke, and fire, all of which left a trembling people on a trembling mountain. And it leaves us with a picture of God that we often struggle to comprehend. A wonderfully gracious God who's utterly holy. A wonderfully gracious God who's also utterly holy. C.S. Lewis tries to help us understand this picture of God a little better in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you haven't read it, I recommend it to you. Well, in the book, we meet Aslan, and Aslan is a lion who is the rightful king and ruler of Narnia, and he is not to be trifled with. When the children in the book first hear about Aslan, they are unsure what to think. 
Should they run to him for help or should they be afraid? Listen to this interaction that we read in the story that they have about it. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, said Susan. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly, said Mrs. Beaver. Then he isn't safe, replied Lucy. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you said Mr. Beaver. Lewis here is giving us an example of the way the Lord wanted his people to view him. Not only wonderfully gracious, but utterly holy too, both together and at the same time. And while it does boggle the mind as we consider then how we're to view God and approach him, we can be sure that the Lord is not one who is gracious one day, and hot with holy justice the next, unpredictable and therefore a risk to trust. But rather, the Lord's compassion and holiness, they work in perfect unison as he accomplishes his good purposes. It's much like a controlled burn in a national forest. It's carefully mapped out with limits and safeguards so that only that which is detrimental for growth and flourishing will be burned. If you've ever seen the immediate aftermath of a charred forest following one of those controlled burns, your reaction might be how tragic and how sad. But if you come back a year later, the flourishing of life in that forest will be something to behold. And so it is with the Lord. In his grace and holiness, he sets limits and safeguards, instructing the people on how to ready themselves to meet him so that they could both hear from the Lord while at the same time be protected from his holiness. And while these limits and safeguards that we read of in our passage today, while they played a part in enabling this life-changing meeting with God, what the people really need, what they ultimately needed was someone who would stand between themselves and God. Someone who would mediate this covenant for them so that they might actually be able to experience the blessings of being God's treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, and his holy nation. They needed God's chosen servant, Moses. And that's what we see throughout today's passage, don't we? From the Lord describing Moses there in verse 9 as the one the people would hear and believe forever, to the meeting with Moses as the one who would give their response to the Lord. And doesn't the rest of Israel's wilderness wanderings bear testimony to their need for Moses? the one who would stand between them and God when their vision of God got distorted, and instead of trusting his ways, they would view God with suspicion and question whether he truly cared for them or not. Or when instead of obeying his commands, they disregard them and test just how holy he was. And in those moments, 
Moses would step in and pray for them and remind them of the many times God demonstrated his care for them, how he freed them from slavery on eagle's wings, how he parted the Red Sea for him, how he fed them with manna and quenched their thirst from a rock, how his commands were for their good, whether they saw it that way or not. I think God's word is telling us this morning not only how important it is is for us to have a right view of God, a God who is wonderfully gracious and good and utterly holy, so that as we make our journey through this world, as his people will be better equipped to trust his ways and obey his words, but more than that, I believe God's word is telling us how important it is for us have someone who will stand in between us and God too. Because just like the people of Israel, we too have seen our God rescue us from slavery. Only ours was a slavery of sin and death. We've seen our God deliver us from the Egyptian-like kingdom of darkness. And we've seen our God provide for us every single step of the way. But friends, how often do we, just like the Israelites of old, cross over the limits and safeguards of his word instead of hearing and obeying? How often do we create gods out of good things like jobs and hobbies or wealth? It's easy at times to hear about Israel making a golden calf or actually verbalizing their desires to return to Egypt after all God had done for them and to shake our heads. But how often are we just like them? And because the answer, unfortunately, is more often than not, let me conclude this morning by offering these two points of application. First, ask the Lord to help you see him rightly. Ask the Lord to help you see him rightly. Let this passage do some theological optometry on your vision of God. Because if you see him as the God who's wonderfully gracious and utterly holy, it really will make a difference in your life as you engage with his ways and his words. Yes, they'll seem hard at times, confusing at others, But rightly seeing the Lord behind them will remind us that his ways and his words are always for our good and for his glory. Or maybe the situation will present itself for you to help someone else to see God rightly. If that situation comes about, do so with humility and examples like this one from Scripture. And remember that change rarely happens overnight. So be patient and prayerful. But we should all this morning ask the Lord to help us see him rightly. And second, let's thank the Lord for doing more than just showing us the kind of God we're supposed to see him as. Let's thank the Lord for doing more than just showing us the kind of God we're supposed to see him as. But knowing that even with, his, with this corrected vision, we'd never trust him without fail, 
nor obey him with perfection, God's also given us someone to stand between us and him. Someone who will obtain God's covenant for us so that those who trust in him might experience those blessings. And that someone is the one scripture refers to as the greater Moses because he's the greater mediator. It's Jesus Christ. Listen to the way the writer of Hebrews describes the results of this gift of God for us. Upon reflecting on Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In other words, there is much reason today to rejoice in God's gift to us of Jesus, who climbed another mountain to offer his perfect life in our place, and his blood as the purification for our sins. And because he did, all who trust in him can enjoy the blessings of being God's people now and along the way until we reach the promised land. Let's pray. So God, we ask that you would help us to see you as you are, loving and holy, so that as we live as sojourners passing through this temporal world onto our eternal home, we'd be helped to trust your ways and obey your words more readily. But in addition to that, Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Son, who came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so now with this fresh vision of who you are and this fresh reminder of our hope in Jesus, we present ourselves to you as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, which is our spiritual worship. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.